I think it's interesting. I mean, you start talking about robotics and, and replacing people. I mean, I think maybe designers do need to be a little bit concerned <laughs> about being replaced. It might happen. Welcome to One to One. I'm Amelia, and this week, my guests are Katie Newell and Wes McGee. Katie and Wes are both architects who teach at the University of Michigan's Taubman School of Architecture and Urban Planning, with a focus on fabrication. And this year, they're the workshop co-chairs of the Acadia Conference, also hosted by Taubman. Acadia stands for the Association for Computer-Aided Design in Architecture, and the organization has been thinking about how computers are changing the profession for 35 years. I spoke with Katie and Wes about what they have planned for the conference workshops taking place later this month, and just how close architects are to achieving the singularity. So I wanted to start out with what might be a little bit of a nitpicky question, but it has to do with the particular title for this year's Acadia theme, which is Post-Human Frontiers, Data, Designers, and Cognitive Machines, which is a super evocative title. There's a lot to unpack there. But one in particular thing that stood out to me was just the word post-human, the first word in the title, which can bring to mind, I feel for some people, this kind of immediate visceral response of like, oh no, I'm going to be made obsolete by a computer. or I'm going to be made somehow less valuable in my profession based on where technology is going, especially if I can't keep up with that technology. And of course, it, it isn't necessarily a negative term in any way. It's also very optimistic of what could become the new possibilities for humans and computers generating designs together. But I'm wondering specifically about the kind of context that you are trying to evoke or that the Acadian general is trying to evoke with using that term and what kind of atmosphere architecture is kind of operating in, in regards to that word post-human. Tell me a little bit more about what that exactly means. Yeah, that's a good question. I think in a lot of ways it is this this idea of, I mean, there's a lot of discussion around data-driven design. And, and I think that also kind of brings a, a little bit of a visceral response from certain designers. I mean, Mario Carpo has talked about how other fields are using data in ways that completely kind of change the scope of, of how you do research and how you analyze things. I think design thinks of themselves as maybe the last one to fall, like data can't replace the, you know, the mind of a designer. But I think there are applications where it is, you know, it's a tool that's certainly contributing to doing things in, that really couldn't be done traditional ways. I mean, the computer was just the beginning of of those new ways. So some of the workshops actually are looking at that in a really specific way and um, optimization techniques that use data. I mean, I think it's interesting. I mean, you start talking about robotics and, and replacing people. I mean, I think maybe designers do need to be a little bit concerned <laughs> about being replaced. It might happen. But of course, they're also involved in the creation of these technologies, while at the same time, they're not the same necessarily pioneers as other professions or other technologists might be, that at least in the reference that you made to kind of the last to fall. But there is still some agency. You know, it's not a completely like, this is just bear coming to bear on me and I have no control of it. And with something like Acadia, there clearly is an interest in engaging a little bit more in the agency aspect of it and kind of being one of the, the pioneers to deciding how this technology can be used and how to make sure that it's not going off the rails. Yeah, I mean, these are very much just new tools that I think designers and architects have at their disposal. Um, I mean, especially my research in Katie's as well is really more on the material and fabrication end. And um, I think in, in that area, for the last eight years or so, I've really been focused on how you adopt technologies from other fields, but 
for them to really be effective in architecture, I think architects have to really look at them from the ground up and how they change the way they work with those tools. We can't really just take a tool from another manufacturing industry and say, okay, we're now going to apply this to buildings. Like it doesn't, that, that might've worked in the beginning, but we're kind of entering an era now where these techniques and both software and hardware things need to be customized to our specific problems. Can you both speak a little bit about the research that you do specifically in fabrication? Sure, we can speak towards that. I mean, I just, I want to add one thing too to the last question first in the sense of the post-human having a lot to do with wondering the range between control and autonomous. And I think that might be some of what makes people a little nervous. And maybe that's one way I can speak to some of the research that we do. Wes and I actually do research together in glass. And one thing we've been doing for quite a long time is working with kilns and tools that we have built that allow us to get a few things set in place, be able to be rigorous with some of our geometries and patterns that we're working with, but then to allow things like the material to kind of take over in what might be some of the final formal endeavors that happen because we can't necessarily be in that environment with the material of glass as it's going through its adjustments, or we can't fully predict yet how necessarily something might slump or bend because of the relationship to the heat and the environment. So some of the work that we're dealing with, it's a lot of a kind of a procedural relationship, which I think that the post-human frontiers is getting after this year and how one can kind of set something up with machines and then allow for it to operate that way. Wes actually is working a little bit more with some things that have to do with some feedback loops that are happening that maybe I'll let you speak to those better. But yeah, I mean, I think it ties in with with the work we've done together as well. I mean, we, we often explore like a technique that definitely is influenced by material behavior. But then, of course, we try to exert control at, at whatever points are either necessary or that just as a designer that we can, which includes, you know, writing custom software, building the machine from scratch in, in some cases. I mean, I've, I've, we've tried to get more into closed loop feedbacks. I think that is a big part of this year's conference. I mean, they specifically talk about how sensing and, and other mechanisms can be used in fabrication. So if, if using a robot to do fabrication, which is really kind of the core part of my research, was kind of the first step, how do you start to have the robot learn or how, do, how does the robot get information about its environment and there's a couple of workshops in the conference that are you know really specifically focused on that the one from the uh, icd in stuttgart that that group is really kind of pioneering the use of sensing and fabrication and so how you can make a process more intelligent by having it react in an integral way so so maybe i, I think you could call it autonomous but of course as you said about authorship i mean the designer of the process is encoding what those responses will be. So we're looking at how the process is going to play out, at least in theoretically, and then looking at how the sensing is going to augment that process. Can you speak a little bit more about the specific kind of research initiatives that are going to be played out in the different workshops that Acadia has planned? Yeah, we could kind of just maybe go off off the list a little bit. I mean, a lot of these research, obviously, it's very quick, fast-paced workshop, and it's really all of them are kind of meant to just expose people from the community to kind of pioneering research from top institutions. So like the first one is a collaboration from uh, the group from ETH Zurich and also UTS Sydney, and in some ways in-house with us at University of Michigan, because they're using our, our robotic tools and, and some of the specific processes. So looking at some research that really kind of began at, at ETH on 3D printing structures in, in space, both for concrete molds, but also for uh, just general additive manufacturing techniques. So that's that's a pretty exciting one. The second one is really more of a software 
based workshop looking at how physics simulations, um, specifically in this case, the kangaroo plugin for um, Grasshopper, can be used to, to design things that have a dynamic effect or, or can move as part of their uh, kind of performative aspect. The third one was the one I mentioned briefly, which is a group from ICD, the Institute for Computational Design in Stuttgart, um, and also an ICD alumni who's now at the Bartlett at UCL. And this one's pretty exciting. They're looking at how you can work with pretty non-traditional fabrication materials, in this case, like rattan, and how that can be woven by a robot. But really kind of the core aspect that makes this possible is the fact that the the process is integrated with with closed loop scanning, so they're you know really able to adapt to a material that's not really precise in the way we architects and designers would think of working with another material. So they have to be able to kind of adapt to that. I'd like to actually um, ask a question specifically about the institutions that are contributing to this kind of research, because without trying to make any vast generalizations, like, of course, there's a lot of exciting research going on at Taubman specifically, but at the same time, there are other schools outside of the U.S. that have kind of a stronger tradition of these this kind of research, and you mentioned ETH in Zurich specifically, and I'm wondering if you feel that U.S. architecture institutions in general could kind of do more to delve deeper into this kind of research and kind of pull their weight a little bit better, whether or not they're dragging their feet. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's dragging their feet. I mean, it, there is definitely a different, um, I guess, educational model between Europe and, and the U.S., especially in architecture. Um, a lot of these research groups are also, you know, they're at the doctoral level. Um, and building technology in the U.S. is definitely focused in very kind of rigorous areas. We, we have building technology at, at Taubman, of course, as well with, with Ph.D. students. But in our case, none of those are working in the fabrication area. So I think it's also just different schools. I was formerly at the, the GSD in Boston at Harvard, um, and it was a bit different there. But I think it's growing, though. I mean, if you look at the number of schools who have really invested in these types of technologies and these research streams, the U.S. is probably the fastest growing market for that. I mean, I, when I when we put in our robotic research cell here at Michigan, there were like three in the U.S. There's probably 30 now. There were already three in Europe at that time. There's like maybe nine or 10. So it's, you know, I think it's, I think it, the distinction is maybe not as big as, as it might seem on the outside, but it, it is exciting to be able to, to kind of share research with them. Obviously, uh, there's another big conference coming up at, at the ICD in, in the, the winter as well. So it's, it's definitely a tight-knit community that, that moves around in this area. One thing that comes to mind is, because you, you, of course, these are huge investments for schools to be taking, but of course, there's also this ongoing conversation about just in higher ed in general uh, in the U.S. about investments and what the return on investment is for higher education, just kind of as a broad topic, and how schools are starting to kind of rethink their offerings and their products, basically, and their curriculum very specifically around these issues in effect with things like student debt and simply access to education. And it's, of course, really a difficult subject because it has a huge bearing, too, and just the value overall of architectural labor and how students are kind of coming into the field and thinking what they may actually be able to do after graduating. And, of course, something like Acadia is also engaged with these ideas of overall how to kind of encourage these kinds of investments and just get discussions around these investments happening in different schools and just in the profession in general. But also, of course, I'm sure there have been discussions about, like, overall how these kinds of whether through the workshops or just the, the topics being addressed at the conference, might come to bear on how we value architectural practice simply as a labor that people offer. Have you had specifically those kinds of conversations kind of like in the planning stages or just as you're putting together these workshops? 
I think we do have those kind of conversations. I think one way also to look at the different workshops that exist, there's a handful of them that have a lot to do with the fabrication side or, or more really the sort of procedural side and this this idea of being able to fabricate and the architect being the maker. I think you'll find in this year's set of workshops, a lot of it also has to do with some really rigorous work with the software to communicate back and forth. And then the second set is almost aimed a little bit more at practice directly in the sense of things that are using some of the softwares to optimize things, meaning teams working together or constraints that might exist in a larger format in a building or a facade system. I think the the ambition is a little bit more that it's not to say one is geared towards practice and one is geared towards academia. I think we see the, the sort of effort of all of these things really pushing back in the field of architecture just to keep pushing at the hope that more and more models of practice end up having research labs and people working both hands-on and with the software built into what might end up being a, an office setting or what we might right now think of what a normative practice office setting is. And I think you know, something that folds into that a lot, we have these conversations a lot at the University of Michigan because we have a master's of science program where we have master's of science in digital technology and master's of science in material systems. And those efforts are for, you know, going back to the previous question, the kind of how are we able to do this much work in a model that is generally a kind of a master's model where students come and go so fast, where the researchers might be teaching at the MARC level and not the PhD level or can't be full time committed to their research labs. And so we end up having these additional degrees that allow for somebody to understand and appreciate the concentration of saying, okay, like if we really try to embed things from the digital technology point of view or looking first at the sort of material or environmental systems point of view, how can that continue to feed into the ways that we end up practicing after all, you know, as, as anyone leaves academia or of course also feeding back if, if someone were to to go into academia themselves. And so I think for us, we really tried to pick workshop leaders and workshop setups that are people we admire for what they're doing with the work they're doing in academia or pushing their practices forward, but also a way to you know, we've set up the workshops to have it. We have this amazing fabrication lab at, at Topman and we set up the workshops in essence to use, each one uses kind of one of our major machines. And I think in the setting of Acadia where it's actually pushing on both academia and the profession, I think it allows for the those actual conversations where we, we spend the conference looking at papers and having those conversations, but the workshops are a moment where we're, we're hands-on with those with those who are about to go present papers as well, or those who are about to go back to the office and run their big data through the work that they're trying to actually produce. Yeah, I think if you look at the, just having been on the planning side, we can see from the constituents who's in these workshops, and it really is a pretty good cross-section of both current students, mostly master's level students, you know, a few researchers who get to travel to these things and want to learn something new, but also definitely people who's you know, work for pretty large architectural firms who are getting out, you know, to go and try and see how a new technology might in some way feed back into what they're doing on a daily basis. So. Well, yeah, the mention of the normative design practice and, and what exactly that means, has ever meant and will ever mean is, of course, always going to be kind of mutating and changing. But of course, Acadia, by being kind of a conduit of this kind of research and trying to bring it to a general or a larger audience has that kind of opportunity to push a little bit on the profession, what the idea of that normative practice might be to engage with these ideas a little bit more heavily. And I'd be interested to hear also what you guys think about approaches to this kind of research in academia versus in the private sector and, and what kind of things are, you know, the 
various pros and cons of either of those. But just on the first hand, like in terms of other conversations, just about the overall impacts of something like Acadia on the profession, there has to have been other discussions of, of just like, who is the architect at this point? Just because we have, especially at Archonnect, we, we get so much incredibly intense conversation and very involved conversation about people's ideas of what the architect's purview should be, what their professional identity should actually be, and what it should become. Um, and it can be very contentious and, of course, very exciting. But there seems to be just like this incredible transition period going on where people are trying to incorporate more of these generative design or computer-aided design practices into their, let's use the word again, normative practice. And others are saying, you know, that's heresy of a, of a sorts. I'm obviously putting a really strong term on it. But I just like to hear how you kind of conceptualize that about what kind of things Acadia's goals and overall interests might have to bear on the self-identity of the architect. I think that's something Acadia as a community has really been trying to continue pushing forward. I mean, it, this I was a former alternate on the board for Acadia, so I've been in a, quite a few of the meetings. And, and at one point, I mean, Acadia was really the only conference looking in this area. But now there are specialized conferences on simulation and, and building technology. There's conferences on specifically on architectural geometry and, and generative design algorithms. There's ones that are a little bit more on the fabrication. And, and Acadia really tries to be the one that brings all those groups into one conference. Kind of, It's got a pretty low acceptance rate, so they try to be kind of the elite conference. I mean, that's one side of tying that together, but I totally agree with your discussion of like, what is the architect? I mean, I think every architect, especially in academia, would have a completely different answer about what that is. And even, I mean, I've been working in this pretty specialized field for eight years now, and I'm, I guess I'm even surprised at how quickly a lot of these techniques have been adopted. I mean, in the beginning, definitely the kind of older guard was, you know, kind of saying this just isn't going to make it out of the research lab. And I think you do see just a lot of projects. It's, it's, it's almost happened faster than I think could have been predicted in some way. So, and some of that is just the efficiencies that parametric tools and, and, data-driven tools are, are bringing to it, but I think there's definitely more to it than just efficiency and optimization. I mean, I think it's definitely the students we're teaching today, you know, their level of understanding of computation and, and their exposure to the computer is completely different than a generation before. And I think it's also one of those wonderful things that kind of seeing is believing. And so thankfully, when there's the research push to that, particularly in academia, that allows a little bit more looseness for the time and the money and maybe not, not not necessarily money, but the time in the sense of not fulfilling something for a client, you know, two months from now with these three things involved, allow for something that then, you know, the profession back and forth and kind of a constant cyclical thing can actually see these things being done. And when it is presented clearly in the, the kind of sense of like, this can actually happen, I think all of a sudden it gets absorbed in a way, thankfully, by those in practice that are aware of it and wanting to kind of pull it in as well. So I think, you know, the setup of the nice thing about Acadia being really that moment, as Wes was saying, where there's the academic and the the profession coming together is I think that that instance of trade and of course, the people that are crossing over in both ways, and in essence, just thankfully slowly proves that there's different ways of working besides the conventions that I think are so strongly held otherwise. And they start to feed back on those conventions through, I guess it then does come back to the optimization and the efficiency is really what generally sets up it as a seller. Well, the conventions also seem to be always cast in some kind of metric on return on investment. It's like the only way that 
we're going to accept you in your professional identity is whether or not the education you received is making the money that we anticipated it would. Of course, just as in the professional identity, there's a huge shakeup going on in the educational identity. And I'm sure as both of you at, at Taubman are well positioned to observe is, is both very exciting, but also for some schools, very difficult to kind of manage and very difficult for students to manage who are interested in these kinds of things to try to kind of split the hairs. And uh, Wes, you referred earlier to your time at, at the GSD and how maybe they weren't at the time that you were there so well prepared to kind of engage with the same ideas you were interested in. Um, I was wondering if both of you respective to your own personal experiences in architecture, academia, and education, not currently, but as students, how you would comment on the school's ability to kind of engage with the ideas that Acadia is pushing and just whether or not the schools at the pace that they can move can kind of keep up. Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways, definitely there's more information sharing now. So that mm -hmm. helps with the ability of of the different programs, even if that's not their specialty and maybe they don't have faculty in, in a certain research area, this, the students are exposed, I mean, through sites like Archonnect, of course, just so much information, just the rate of dissemination of new ideas, new techniques and tools is, is kind of mind blowing. That didn't exist when I was a student. You know, I was actually very fortunate and, and me and Katie actually were in the same program at different times to um, be at a, at a school that had kind of a a world-renowned digital fabrication lab in 2000. So it was way before it really kind of caught on. And that obviously kind of contributed to where I am today. But I had never heard of Acadia at, at that time. Mm -hmm. And so, I, but I think now that's really kind of grown. I mean, obviously, so much of this is now social media driven and, and it's just instantaneous the way new things are, are disseminated. Do you feel like there should be more of a filter on the way that, that stuff like these new technologies are disseminated through social media when it can be so immediate and so superficial in a way? I think it will filter itself. I, I kind of have a, I guess I believe in the... <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of on us to teach the, the students. <laughs> yeah. I mean, of, of course, in, internally, yeah, the, that that's where the faculty step in to kind of, you know, broaden the perspective of a student realizing, certainly, especially... I, like I said, teaching in robotics, I definitely want my students to understand what's all been done because there's a lot of, you definitely see the, the repeat ideas, mm -hmm. the repeat formulas, and you're like, you know, this, that happened 10 years ago. Have you not seen this? And of course they haven't. They're, they're students. Except <laughs> I think the, to show them the book on the wall where it's at. Except the students, the, the kind of new things, I feel like they see it faster than we do because of the things happening with social media that somebody will bring and say, did you see what they're doing here? So yeah, I think it's a little bit on us, the kind of references back and the rigor back to some of the, the things that came before. And I think it's also tied in a way a little bit with just some things becoming so easy to obtain now in the sense of really inexpensive 3D printers or different you know ways to make tools that I think allow somebody to have a surprisingly quick access to things and and you know output becomes very very fast and immediate and it almost seems like with the the kind of dissemination within social media it's it's almost like a constant race to have the the newest photo up or the newest endeavor happening so but i think then we if we go back to the earlier conversation about even some of the different setups with other programs being able to invest it more in a phd system or a system where a researcher is dedicated to something for seven or eight years, that's really where we start to see the the depth that's involved. And I think the things that have the ability besides the sort of immediate formal or aesthetic allure can actually pull things through. Like how, how does this change our process of working or how can this manipulate different behaviors? 
just between us or between us and our software or machines. Going back to the idea of the expansive architectural purview, either in an academic sense or professionally, who do you think or, or which profession do you think at this time are the architect's best ally in terms of researching more deeply into the issues that Acadia is bringing up and just furthering the profession of architecture? I think, well, I think architects have a lot of potential allies. I mean, of any discipline, it bridges more with other disciplines than any other discipline I can think of. I mean, so different, certainly different people will have a different answer. I mean, I actually have a background in engineering, so engineers are my, my first. <laughs> That's pretty handy. It's pretty handy. Yeah, they, they tend to come in pretty handy. I guess I'm thinking of like the farthest then away from that network of generalist sensibilities that the architect already has at their disposal, that, that it's presumed that they already have this expansive reach. And so who then becomes the most valuable because they don't necessarily fall in that reach already to then partner with architects? That's a great question. My gut reaction had to do with anyone doing material science, mm-hmm. a sense of, you know, this this moment where a lot of the behavior of the work or the feedback that's coming through has a lot to do with how the material is actually being handled as well to reach farther. I, th- oh, I think maybe the answer is we have to both not think about what we do. Yeah, I know, so, right? <laughs> conference, I think, is perfect for that, though, because it's it's sociologists, it's, yeah. it's psychologists, it's um, health is one of the fastest yeah. growing areas that architecture has to really take a big part in. Um, and I think Acadia as an organization certainly tries to bring all of those different viewpoints in. Um, yeah, maybe it goes back to that post-human term and yeah. dealing with the kind of psychology or the the sort of order of operations, not order of operations so much as the like ways of thinking, I guess, that can break down some of the conventions. So one more question for you. It might be a little bit silly, but bear with me on this. In recent news, it's come up a fair amount, uh, this issue of the supposed hypothesis that we are living in a computer simulation. And there's a few noted tech billionaires who have been involved with either bringing this idea, this hypothesis to kind of a general public discourse, but also, as it recently has been discussed, actually funding scientific research into supposedly breaking humans out of this computer simulation. And this is something that Elon Musk has spoken about, and it's kind of in the popular consciousness right now a fair amount. Do you have any comments in engaging in similar kinds of ideas around Acadia? Do you have any ideas or comments on this current topic of discussion? It's an interesting... Uh... I mean, I think there's, I wouldn't literally think of it in that way, but I think, I, I mean, there's a cultural that. question too. I mean, I think yeah. in, in both the design community and academia, I always feel pretty detached from kind of the current social media, kind of popular media cycle. And I enjoy that detachment <laughs> as much as possible. But I think, so in some ways, I think the research is on like, how can we keep the rest of the world connected to like what really matters. And maybe that's the problem is that, uh, you know, we're projecting what really matters to us, which is, you know, I'm, I'm more worried about what's the newest way to fabricate buildings of the future than I am thinking about if I'm actually not in, in the real world. <laughs> <laughs> it's a major cop out of a hypothesis. for sure. <laughs> I think I've been working so hard on our research lately that I wasn't aware of this or the computer simulation is so good that I've been left out of this. Data driven research. I mean, that really yeah. was, I was um, trying to think, I think this was from fabricate. 2014 in, in Zurich, Mario Carpo also spoke and mm. basically said in other fields, like they don't even have to, they're predicting that they won't need to do the experiments because there's enough data that using meta-analysis, they can just simulate the experiment because oh, wow. they can tie together 
Everything all the experiments else. that have ever been done. One of the effective premises behind this hypothesis is that everything that has ever happened has already happened. Exactly, yeah. And therefore, we are just in that meta-analysis and we should figure out a way to get out of it. Yeah. I kind of immediately thought he had to be kidding, though, because I totally was like, that's completely wrong. So maybe it's like <laughs> post-data instead of post-human. It's like a post-actual experiment. To that, that could be the meta, next decade meta, post-data. Yeah. Post-data. <laughs> yeah. Totally, I'm into it. I mean, a lot of the pieces, I, and I totally respect that, and am frankly a little bit jealous about how both of you are able to kind of be able to be attached from the current media cycle, because of course I am 100% have to be keyed into it. But this kind of hypothetical conversation is not built for the media that it's being discussed through. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting to see people try to condense ideas like this into 140 characters or trying to like have real debates about it, like in other forums that you just think like, wow, this would really merit like a much more intense scenario. But instead we're like, trading Facebook comments or something like that. And so I'm wondering, just as, as one last question about Acadia, what are kind of in, especially doing these workshops, what's kind of the next step to make sure that the information continues going onward and doesn't potentially just stay at the level of the conference? Yeah, I think that's something that we're always thinking about. I mean, in the conference or even as our classes, and I think, you know, the kind of the longevity or the, the longevity of the work or the ability for it to really shift things has a lot to do with how we either disseminate it, document it, or keep building on on things. And I think, you know, some of the, the great things is that it brings together so many different schools. I think there's also some things that are tied together. Some of the workshops are actually building off of workshops that have been happening at conferences prior or will be happening at conferences after Acadia. Acadia is kind of one step within the many. So I think there's the constant effort sort of locally to those who are in the conference to keep the work going and to kind of constantly keep it in check and to build off of one another. I think it's also on us to spread it to the audiences that are outside or you're not able to come to Acadia this year, you know, through the things that the outlets that we'll, we'll be able to do um, with you guys at Arconnect, but also just the kind of hopefully, you know, maybe tapping into some of these larger conversations where it's not so much about this is the exact deliverable from this workshop, but instead, you know, the discussion about ways of working or the sort of constant feedback loop that can or can't happen back on the profession. So I think it has to be things that are zoomed out a little bit further as opposed to just the results that happen for many, any one particular workshop, given that it's about a mad dash for 40, 50 some hours of work. Wes, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I think that's also a, a topic that Katie is really interested in. I mean, they've, over the last few years, I like I mentioned being on the board. I mean, this is an ongoing conversation for them to try and kind of increase how that's disseminated, get more people, you know, interested in understanding what it's about. I mean, obviously, it's a pretty core group to the way architecture mm-hmm. is taught today. I mean, CAD is taught in every school. So this is like architecture's, you know, forum for that discussion. And it, it doesn't have to, you know, be limited just to kind of high-level academic research. I mean, it is for the discipline, it's for the practice as well, and, and kind of bringing all those parties together. I mean, I think that's, that's a big part of, I mean, Autodesk has been a long-time sponsor, and, and obviously they hopefully continue to be a big part of the community. Well, Wes and Katie, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to Archonnect Sessions 1-to-1 with Katie Newell and Wes McGee. 
Dana Lovoynov edits the podcast, and Matt Skillings composed our music. Myself and Paul Petrunia are the producers of One to One. New episodes come out every Monday. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play Music or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. We are at Arc Sessions on Twitter, and you can email us at connect at arcconnect.com. Thanks again for listening to One to One. <laughs>